Mark chapter 2, and we'll pick up where we left off last week as we are journeying through this series of short stories. You might have picked that up as you're reading through throughout the week. Mark sort of pops from one little story to the next, from one scene to the next. And each of them have their own unique sort of flavor, their own sort of um, agenda. And yet, uh, they work together uh, as something of a unit. Um, And just very quickly by way of introduction, if you just glance over chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and scroll all the way through to chapter 3, verse 6, what you have is five little stories. The first one encompasses the first 12 verses of Mark 2, and, um, and that's where uh, Jesus heals the paralytic who is lowered down into the house while he's teaching. But before he heals the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven, right? And the Jews and the, the religious leaders go, you can't say that kind of stuff. Well, then skips over to Verse 13 through 17, another little story where Jesus calls a tax collector to come be his disciple. And the Jews go, you can't have tax collectors as disciples. They're scum of the earth, right? Then next little vignette, verses 18 to 22, where we'll consider our time this morning. Jesus uh, is confronted about why his disciples don't fast the same way that the others fast, the way that the religious types fast. And Jesus is like, I got a whole new program for you, right? And they're like, you can't do that. So then you skip to verse 23, and there's the next story where Jesus is doing something on the Sabbath day. He's like, why are your guys picking grain on the Sabbath? That's against our rules. And Jesus is like, your rules are terrible. And then you skip to verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, and it's another question about the Sabbath and can someone heal on the Sabbath and Jesus is like I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath I'm God so here's the point here's the point in this five stories and the story we're considering this morning is in the middle it's the uh, it's if you will it's it's what the other four are pointing towards So this story illuminates the lessons of the previous two, and it illuminates what will be taught in the next two. And so this morning's time will be a little different because we're going to talk about the big picture more so, and then next week and the week after, we'll look back kind of again and again at how this central story illuminates those and has illuminated the previous two in our Sundays together in Mark. It's called a chiasm. If you got my email, there was a little bit of an explanation in there. Chiasms are frequently used in Hebrew literature where you might have five phrases or even more, bigger, you know, be like 25 phrases. And each of them have like a mirrored component until you get to the middle phrase. And the middle phrase is the point And then everything that comes before and after is pointing to it. The book of Leviticus is one giant chiasm where in the middle of the book of Leviticus, you have the Day of Atonement. That's the most important day. It's what everything is built upon. The Torah itself, the first five books of the Old Testament, are a giant chiasm. Genesis and Deuteronomy have a thing. Numbers and, excuse me, Exodus and Numbers, they have a thing. And in the middle is the book of Leviticus, which is all about how sinful man can come close to a holy God. It's the point. Okay, so that's just a brief uh, speed reader version of, um, of chiastic literature in Hebrew 
um, in Hebrew language. So uh, I hope that that is um, just somewhat illuminatory for us as we look into these verses beginning in verse 18 through verse 22 of Mark chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Interesting, right? Not that they won't or shouldn't, cannot The days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Not might, not should, will. Interesting, right? Verse 21, no one sews a a piece of unshrunk cloth into an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away, the new from the old, and the worse tear is made. Verse 22, and... Along the same lines, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst from the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and all the effort that was put into it is wasted and lost, and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wine skins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your word preserved for us, inerrant infallible, inspired. May you open it to us now. May you um, quiet our hearts with the, the goodness of the gospel. And may you help us to see clearly how this gospel is in such contradiction to so much of what our world is compelling us to do today uh, that we might be at peace with you or we might be morally upright people. Uh, help us to see the clarity in these things, the exclusivity of the gospel, and uh, give grace to both my mouth and to our ears as we sit at your feet. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The gospel of Jesus Christ is incompatible with every man-made religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ is incompatible with every man-made religion. In Old Testament Israel, the Baals were not to be worshipped alongside Yahweh. That's commandments one and two. In the New Testament teaching of the apostles, the New Covenant Church may not worship the Greek gods alongside Jesus, right? And here in the days of Jesus, what had become nothing more than a prideful, self-centered, external showmanship, Judaism, This, too, was incompatible with the program of salvation by grace through faith. All of these things, if you would say, are they are exclusive. God is calling for the exclusive worship of Israel. The apostles teach the exclusive worship of Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus calls for the exclusive commitment to his gospel over and above and far and against what had become apostate Judaism in first century Israel. The Old Testament system of forgiveness through sacrifice has two critical components related to Christianity. Ready? The Old Testament... 
Look, I'm going to move today, all right? So you got to be with me. So the Old Testament system of forgiveness has, has two critical components related to Christianity. All the feasts and the sacrifices and all the you know, splashing of the blood. The whole thing. Ready? There's two things. Number one, there's the foreshadowing of the Messiah. Paul says these things are a shadow of, the, of that which is to come, but the substance is Christ. So first and foremost, it points to the Messiah. Secondly, the Old Testament system is meant to reinforce to a people and thereby to the whole world that the blood of bulls and goats can never truly satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God. They will always be inferior, incomplete, insufficient. What is necessary is the perfect blood. So, let's continue. The forgiveness that is offered through the sacrificial system was all about the coming Messiah. It was not because the sacrifice was made that a sinful Old Covenant Hebrew could be forgiven, but rather because God's character is merciful and inclined towards forgiveness. That's why they can be forgiven. Oh, you killed an animal. Big whoop. You get the idea? matters not. In fact, lots of pagan religions incorporate animal sacrifice. God does not shine and look down on all of those systems and say, oh good, your sins are forgiven. No. God says, I am compassionate and merciful. I am inclined to forgive. Obey this prescription for coming to me and receive pardon for your sins. It isn't because they made a sacrifice, it's because God promised to do something. You get the idea? We'll continue to break this down, okay? The sacrifices made to atone for sin were always meant to break the heart of the sinner as he witnesses the tragic results that come from sin. Right? Imagine yourself especially men, this is especially helpful for us men, because as representatives of our family, we would place our left hand on the head of that sheep or that goat, and we would stand at the entrance to the tabernacle, and there was a time when a man would walk up to that entrance, and there in the distance and far and above him is the pillar of fire emanating the very presence of God. And there, he would ceremonially slit the throat of the animal, having placed his hand on its head, and knowing the promise of God, and experiencing in his heart the, the realization that the sins of myself and my family are being, by God's grace, transferred to this animal. And look, as the blood gurgles from its veins, and the life drains from the animal, look at what sin Costs. That's the idea. See the price of your redemption. And so the Jews developed these habits over time where they would tear their clothing like the Hulk and they would say, oh, we're grieving, right? And Joel would say, stop tearing your clothes. Tear your heart. Be heartbroken over your sin. This was always the point. See the cost. See the tragedy of God's promise in Genesis 
the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. The result of sin is death. And God is gracious enough to prolong his judgment by allowing your sins to be transferred to that animal. But look, son, look, daughter, see the price of our redemption. Be heartbroken, mourn, fast even, as we'll see later. Here is what sin requires to be forgiven. See this and weep. See this and mourn. And then thank God for his gracious forgiveness because that should have been me. But instead, it was the substitute. And on the basis of that grief, that genuine, heartfelt mourning over sin, leave this place of blood, go to the place of gratitude and obedience. Right? God has forgiven your sins, ancient Israel. Be motivated to obey this gracious God who has promised to cover your sin, transfer your sin on the basis of that animal's death. That's good motivation if it's, in, if it's engaged in the heart. And this was the point of the old covenant. The blood of an animal cannot forgive you, but God who promised to forgive can. And so the system is based on God's promise of forgiveness, not the merit of an animal sacrifice. The sacrifice would be honored and offered based solely on the word of God. If God hadn't promised to wash away your sins by the sacrifice of the animal, it matters not how many animals you sacrifice. You get the point. It's all based on simply what God promised and therefore what they believed. This was never meant to be an end unto itself. The sacrifices were always going to be a temporary pointer to the Messiah who was to come, the one sacrifice for all. But again, still it matters The blood of a Jewish man spilled 2,000 years ago is not your salvation. It is the promise associated with that sacrifice and your belief in it that saves. Or else, all would be saved. You see? It's always about what God promised, not about what man does. God didn't pardon Israel's sin year after year on the Day of Atonement because they slaughtered a goat. God pardoned them because they believed in his promise to pardon them, and that belief was evidenced by their adherence to his commands. And so they slaughter the goat. It was and always is about what God promised to do, Because, Exodus 34, he is a compassionate and merciful God. He is inclined toward forgiveness. When I was growing up as a child, I believed God to be inclined toward lightning. I believed God to be inclined to just waiting for me to step out of line and he would snap me back. Well, I'll tell you what, and it came fast and it came usually at the hand of my dad or my mom across the face. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Back talk me, boy. You know what I'm saying, right? Boy, God was waiting for me to step out of line. 
My mom, she prayed this over me when I was a kid. And if I'd have known this at the time, I'd have been so mad. And I was grateful later on. But she prayed that I would never get away with anything. And that woman, the Lord hears her prayers. (laughs) But man, I thought, man, I can't get away with anything. God's just waiting for me to step out of line. And he's going to zap me back into it. I never, my buddies get away with murder. And I never get away with the slightest. I didn't understand I didn't understand that when I was young. But now I understand it's because God is inclined to forgive and that he loves, so he chastises. Clearly there were times in Israel when the religious leaders and the monarchs understood this, and there were times in ancient Israel when they did not. David wrote of the wonder of God's forgiveness. He didn't sing of the strength of his own sacrifices. You see, Ezra preached and the people wept and mourned for their sin. There were times when they got it, that it was about the heart. It was about being broken, grieving over your own sin and sinfulness. But all too often, Israel fell into empty religion. The last book of the Bible, Malachi, God, he confronts this empty religion. He says, you bring in the animals, and you slaughter them, and you go through the rigmarole, and God's like, I don't want any more of your sacrifices. And they're like, but you told us to kill the animals. God said, no, I told you to be heartbroken over your sin. See, they missed it. God says, I don't want, please stop. They just read Malachi. It's incredibly confrontational. You bring me these, you know, one-eyed goats and these lame sheep. They're not, they're not good enough for your dinner table at home, but they're good enough for the sacrifice because you're just heartlessly going through the motions to placate my demands. And then you say, God, we did the thing. You have to forgive us and protect us. And God's like, just stop. You've missed it altogether. There's no heartache over sin. There's no mourning. They fell into empty religion. Going through the motions, offering the sacrifices, but as Isaiah said in chapter 29, verse 13, this people draw near to me with their mouth. How dare we sing and not feel it? These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Many, many worship services in America today need to stop with the celebrating and start with the mourning. It needs to stop. It's false. It's an affront. It's offensive. Just like in the days of Isaiah, the Jews in the days of Jesus honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Instead of adhering to what would be called true Judaism, which is heartbroken over sin and longs for and awaits the coming Messiah, The Jews of Jesus' day had made up their own religion with its own requirements, and they stamped it with God's law, but it wasn't. It was their own concoction, and it, the traditions of men, as Jesus called them over and over again, it had supplanted the commands of God. Jesus said, you teach as doctrine the traditions, and you forfeit the word. You can't do your traditions And obey God's word. So you've chosen your own traditions. They called it true religion, but it was empty. 
religion. MacArthur says an empty ritual is always the enemy of true godliness. So dangerous, church, to be caught up in religious activity and to never weep over our own sin. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to cry, right? I mean, I like to do it, obviously. Yeah. But if there's not a mourning over our own sin, but there is a preoccupation with religious activity, we're just spinning our religious wheels like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And what we'll see today is that Jesus says the two things are incompatible. They're completely incompatible. This empty religion is what Jesus violated. Okay? I heretically watched as a pastor said from the pulpit, Jesus broke the law for love. Jesus did not break the law. Jesus broke the empty, vain religious traditions that the Jews had made into Judaism in the first century Israel. That's what he violated. That's what he confronted. And this is what he corrected. The gospel of Jesus Christ is unique. It is unmixable. It is incompatible with any other religious idea, belief, or proposed means of salvation. This is so true that the most common criticism of Christianity in my lifetime has been that we are narrow-minded. Followed closely by the fact that we are hypocritical, but that's another sermon for another day, and it's not altogether untrue. The critique is true, that we are narrow-minded, and it is one from which we need not shy away. The gospel of Jesus Christ is narrow. Jesus said so. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, one of the common intellectual arguments leveled against Christianity, and it happened to me on an airplane when I was about 18 years old wearing my Bible college sweatshirt, wasn't ready to answer it. I'd like for you young people to be better prepared. But one of the common intellectual arguments is, is the prevalence of other major world religions. They go, are you telling me you got it right? And all these people got it wrong. There are 1.91 billion Muslims in the world today. 1.6, excuse me, 1.16 billion Hindus. 507 million Buddhists. And another group that's about uh, uh, 1.5 billion combined of Jews, atheists, other sort of fringe religions or unaffiliated all of which of that 1.5 billion combined are expressly not Christian, definitely not. By their own admission, not ours. Now Christian, are you telling me, says the skeptic, that all those billions of people and all their religious texts and all of their preachers, that they're all wrong, but you, the 40-year-old accountant in Charlotte, North Carolina, right, you have it right. 
that all those people in all their ardent devotion, their thoughtful consideration, their fasting and their contemplating, their religious fervor, they are all on the path doomed for destruction, but you with your Lexus SUV and a couple of chickens in your backyard, like you have it figured out. You've got the exclusive claim to truth and the mysteries of what comes after death. Friends, we must be prepared to confidently say yes and mournfully say yes. Because that means billions and billions are on the path to destruction, who are made in God's image, who deserve our prayerful intercession and our diligent evangelism. But more than that, we must be ready to double down and say this, not only does Christianity claim to have and offer what those other religious systems do not, but Christianity cannot even be mixed with them even 1%. It is 100% Christianity and 0% anything else. If you have 99% Christianity and 1% Islam, 1% Mormonism, 1% Buddhism, then you no longer have Christianity. It cannot be mingled. It is oil and water. It cannot be mixed. It cannot be watered down. It cannot be compromised in any way, shape, or form. You think I'm narrow-minded. You don't know the half of it. That's what we've got to be prepared to say and mean it. There's three reasons. First of all, because it's true. Second of all, because these questions, or rather accusations, will come, if they haven't already. And third of all, because Christianity is a proselytizing belief system. You cannot be a Christian and not care to evangelize other people. It's impossible. I mean, literally, like we are disciples who make disciples. I mean, if we're not making disciples, if we're not proliferating the belief system, then we don't really believe it. You cannot love your neighbor as Jesus calls us to love without trying to convert them to Christianity. If you really believe what you say you believe, your neighbor is on his way to hell and he's getting in a car and he's driving away to work and people die in car accidents every single day. Do you get the point? You can't love people and not tell them there is one way and it's 100% Christianity and it's 0% anything else. That's true love, to do anything else or to intimate, to accept the message that Christianity can be mingled with other ideas, that too is to hate your neighbor. Christianity is incompatible, unashamedly, unapologetically so, with every other religious idea. This is the central theme of Mark 2 verse 1 through 3 verse 6. This is at the midpoint of the chiasm. In the first story, Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic, and the Jews say you can't forgive sins. In the second story, Jesus calls on a tax collector to be his disciple, and the Jews say you can't have a tax collector for a disciple. In the fourth story, after today's text, you can't do that on the Sabbath. In the fifth, you can't heal on the Sabbath. All they see is Jesus violating their rules. The Jews kept saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. And Jesus, in this middle story out of five, actually says, he goes, actually, I can. And the real criticism is actually leveled at you. You're criticizing me. I'm criticizing you. 
You can't have it your way and have salvation. Real salvation, real forgiveness will not fit in with your man-made religion. Now, all that by way of introduction. Let's consider our text. We have, number one, a critical accusation. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said, why, don't, uh, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Um, every one of the gospel writers that records these events records them in this exact order. Jesus is partying with the tax collectors. We might rightly better say he's feasting with them and evangelizing them, okay, without compromise. But he's, he's feasting with the sinners, and then the very next immediate, seemingly right thereafter, there is this critical accusation. Why do the Pharisees fast and their disciples? Why do the disciples of John the Baptist fast? But you guys are eating <laughs> quite a lot. This is uh, not a question, it's an accusation, right? You know questions like this, leading questions, accusatory questions. This is one of those. It's not a simple inquiry. It is, the, it is accusatory in nature because Jesus is violating the strict traditions developed over time and practiced by the devout in Israel. Now, for a little bit of history, let's just talk about fasting under the Old Covenant. The only fast that God requires, so let's just be clear on this, the only fast required in Mosaic law is on the Day of Atonement. And there is nothing to support the notion that this question was leveled on the Day of Atonement. Every gospel account references when it's a feast day and when things happen and on this point and on that point. No such thing. There is no such intimation that this happened on the Day of Atonement. So there is no such accusation that Jesus is actually violating the law of Moses. He is only violating the tradition of fasting implemented by the religious leaders. Fasting under the, uh, under the structures of the uh, Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, it says, abstain from food and afflict your soul. The idea is mourn over your sin. Fast and mourn, these things were together. They were always affiliated with one another um, in Old Covenant life. Uh, fasting, however, was chosen, and it was optional. And God says, you can do these things. You can fast at various times. I simply require it only this one time. Make sense? And so in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament um, record of events, you can find one-day fasts, three-day fasts, and of course, 40-day fasts that are voluntarily taken upon uh, the, uh, the, the, if you will, the ardent devotee. Always connected to sin and mourning over sin. We find this in Esther chapter 4, Isaiah 58, 1 Kings 21, and Joel 1, just to name a few. Esther 4, Isaiah 58, 1 Kings 21, Joel 1. However, fasting in New Testament, or excuse me, first century Israel... It had become an opportunity for showmanship. In fact, that's what Isaiah 58 is all about. Um, no. Isaiah 58, we read it this week. This had become an opportunity for showmanship, for a display of piety, as a, as a regulation to test your devotion. 
And so the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. It's very likely that this accusation was leveled on Jesus on one of those traditional fast days. Now this is hard for us because we don't live in a religious society. We say we live in a Christian nation, but we are a pagan society. If we're going to live out true Christian belief, we're going to be aliens among uh, fellow men. Um, we don't live in a religious society, but first century Israel was a very religious society. Okay, these things were commonplace. These people were fasting, and it was obvious, and everyone knew it, and they made it obvious. Mondays and Thursdays are fast days. Why don't you fast? These were merely traditions that sprang out of perhaps a sincere desire for holiness and mourning over sin, but of course grew into external regulation and so we note then that Jesus broke tradition, not law. What Jesus did was an abomination to their tradition, and in many ways, that was the point. What Jesus is promoting and modeling and teaching is a form of Judaism that is incompatible with their traditions. It's a form of Judaism that believes in the Messiah. This was not a typical sect of Judaism espoused by a rabbi with his own interpretation of the law. They had sects of Judaism that could coexist peacefully, Pharisees and Sadducees. They had different uh, interpretations of what it meant, life after death, the resurrection, and so on. And they're okay. They can cohabitate. But this new thing that Jesus is promoting, it doesn't work. It can't cohabitate, if you will, with these versions of Judaism practiced in first century religious Israel. What he's championing is incompatible. It's unacceptable. Both cannot be true. Therefore, Jesus must be stopped at all costs. And while the conclusion that they came to was true, these things can't coexist. They simply chose the wrong side as to which one was correct. Our world says the same thing to the genuine, unwavering Christian. Your views are incompatible with our day. Your views are incompatible with our culture. Many things in our culture can align and agree with one another so long as they are aligned against true Orthodox Christianity. But Orthodox Christianity does not compromise to play nice with other religious belief systems. Case in point, since the... Invasion of Israel on October 7th and the subsequent um, response in Gaza, uh, marches and protests have broken out all over on American soil in American cities. Among them is a group called Gays for Palestine. Gays for Palestine. Now, that is a, a homosexual belief system is championing the rights of what they believe to be another oppressed people group the Gazans, who they refer to as the Palestinians in Gaza. Now, that's strange because there is no such thing as a gay in Palestine. Homosexuality is illegal in Muslim countries, punishable by uh, law, excuse me, punishable by death. But these two religions can, uh, they can coalesce for a period so long as they are combining against the truth. 
They will temporarily, temporarily align regardless of the conflict in their belief system so long as they are allied against the one true God. There are many more examples that we won't explore for the sake of time. The point is simply clear. The apostate religion of first century Judaism was incompatible with Jesus, and Jesus responds saying, yep. So from a critical accusation, we come number two to a corrective response, verse 19. A corrective response. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Well, again, the Jews would fast for show, and so the rabbis made a law. Get this. The rabbis made a law that you can't attend a wedding if you're fasting. Well, why is that? Well, because um, you would be, as a first century Jew, fasting for piety, and, and you would often kind of let your hair go disheveled, and you wouldn't wash, and you might put a little ash on your head and uh, go through these external um, emotions, and then you show up to a wedding, and it's like, hey, celebrate with me, have some cake, I got married today, woohoo, and you go, I can't, I'm fasting, Right? I'm mourning for sin and fasting. It's like, dude, you're killing the vibe, right? Literally. So Jews, the rabbis were like, all right, look, you can fast, but you can't come to a wedding because you're bumming everybody out. Isn't that funny? The whole point of fasting was supposed to be about mourning over sin in the heart, not putting on an external display. This is part of why I have a bit of an issue with um, not observing Lent or taking a season of Lent. I'm reading a Lent devotional right now uh, to, to anticipate, you know, uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, but I, I take issue with putting something on your forehead that is an external display of what is meant to be an invisible heart of devotion. I mean, Jesus confronted this directly. He said, don't do this. If you do, you have your reward. People go, oh, wow, look at you. You're doing, that's it. Man has applauded you, and God yawns in heaven. You get the point? So they weren't allowed to come to the weddings. And so what does Jesus say? Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Right? They cannot. Here Jesus compares his presence on earth with his people to that of a wedding celebration. The groom with his bride. Jesus with his church. All right, here is yet another example of why the marriage ceremony is so precious and worth defending, but we won't labor on that. Simply note that Jesus uses the sacred union of a human wedding as a picture of his own union to his people. And so it's worth preserving and protecting. That said... What does Jesus do? He says, your tradition says my disciples can't fast at this spiritual wedding. We are celebrating. I'm here. But immediately thereafter, Jesus promises his own death. He says there will come a day that the groom, Jesus, is a pyro taken up, caught up taken away from him. 
And the idea here is simply that Jesus predicts his own death. There are probably layers to this, but we don't have time to explore them all. Jesus predicts his own death. And after his crucifixion, during the silence of Saturday, the disciples would be devastated, afraid, confused, heartbroken, mourning, and they almost certainly would fast. They almost definitely did fast. When Jesus appears to the banks, Jesus appears on the banks of Galilee by a charcoal fire, and Peter's out on his boat, and Peter jumps in the water and swims to shore, so excited to see Jesus. What does he have? Fish. He says, let's eat. The fasting is over. Get the idea? When Jesus appears in the company of the disciples, when they're locked up in the house, what does he do? He says, you got anything to eat? The fast is over. When Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and he talks to them about about the word and explains to them the Messiah. He goes to their house that night. What does he do? He breaks bread and he gives it to them. In essence, to say, the fast is over. Eat. My disciples were fasting while he was in the grave. But the fasting is over. In each case, it's as if Jesus is saying, there will be a time when my people fast. They will mourn when I'm taken up. And perhaps, again, another one of those layers might be a reference to his ascension. And since his ascension, the people of God, we do fast, and we mourn, and we pray, right? The day will come, he says. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not about your traditions. It's about me. I'm here, and you're missing it. You keep your traditions, but you miss the Messiah. Pick one. You see? And that's where we come, number three, to a compelling illustration. Uh, in fact, he gives two, but they both make the same point. Jesus says, what I'm bringing is something new altogether. No one sews, verse 21, a piece of unshrunk cloth into an old garment. Right? There were no synthetics. Everything shrunk. You make, some, you make a garment, you wash it, it shrinks. Uh, now we've got our you know, spandex yoga pants, and they always fit, you know, regardless of how much weight we gain. Right? No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth into an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Another analogy. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst because the skins are dry, right? The wine is destroyed. All your effort is lost. The skins are destroyed. New wine is for fresh wine skins. What I am bringing is something new. What I am ushering in is a new era. The era of grace. And this does not work inside your man-made religion. All new cloth shrinks, so you don't sew a new patch into an old garment. Similarly, you don't use old wineskins for new wine. New wineskins are pliable, old ones are brittle. You use a new wineskin for new wine. Actually, it was a tradition, it was, it was a process. Okay, just, we'll just take a minute and do this because it's fun. You take the skin of a goat, and you sew its, we'll call them hands and feet, but you know what I mean, front, front things and back things, what are they, hind hooves. You sew the holes up in their limbs, and you use the, the neck hole as a spout, okay? And you, you pour wine in there, and you 
sew it up, and you let it set, and you hang it upright so that all the dregs settle to the bottom, and then you would take another fresh wineskin, and you'd pour it from the neck of that goat into the next goat. This is nuts, right? People drank this stuff, you know what I'm saying? Right? And the dregs would stay in the bottom of that wineskin. They'd use that to make like vinegars and things like that. And they would repeat the process until the wine came out clear. And then that's what you would actually drink. But each time, what was required was a fresh wineskin. If you tried to use one that was old and worn and used, you pour this wine that you've worked so diligently. You got the grapes and you smashed them up probably with your feet. And you did this stuff and you got the dregs. And you, got, you sow it and you pour it and you sow it and you pour it. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm out of skins. I'm going to use an old one. And you pour it in there. All that effort is lost. Jesus says, it simply doesn't work. By grace, through faith. That's it. Jesus offers forgiveness of your sins. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. Don't add to it. Don't water it down. It doesn't work. And so what we find, friends, is we find Christians on the internet debating over what looks like and sounds like minutia. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's simply the stalwart saying, he gets us campaign on Super Bowl television. That's not true Christianity. It might look like a compassionate compelling version of Christianity, but it's like a percent plus a percent. And Jesus just said, anything but the true article does not work. You go to the He Gets Us campaign website, and what do you find? It's a collection of religious, open-minded people, some Christians, some other people, presenting Jesus in a particular way. It's not the gospel. It's a close facsimile of the gospel. It's like the Mormon church, yeah, Jesus and God and the Bible, sure, plus our weird stuff. And Jesus just says, it doesn't work. It's not, it's not that Jesus is saying, you're terrible people. And He's saying, it simply won't add up to eternal salvation. That's not a judgmental condemnation. It's the simple, objective fact of the matter. There is true Christianity, and there is everything else. 1% off, we don't have Christianity anymore. This is the pearl of great price spoken of in Matthew chapter 13. A man finds a field. And in that field is a great treasure. And this treasure is so valuable, it's so unique, it's so special, it's so unlike anything else that he goes home and sells everything he has to buy the field, to get the treasure. That's the gospel, friends. It's worth abandoning everything else to attain. And it cannot be acquired until we abandon everything else. That's the gospel. And so in our world of social justice and Mormon charade itself as Christianity and he gets us ads, friends, we must be devoted to the truth 
exclusively and at the cost of all others. Not because we're hateful, but because we are incredibly loving. Uh, let's pray and we'll pause there until next week. Gracious Father, thank you for your kindness to us and how you have made these things clear. You know, we might get confused and we might not see the whole picture, but it's not because you haven't spoken. It's often simply because we're not listening. And so, Lord, help us uh, to both be um, committed to the truth, but also to be graciously so, lovingly so, but confidently so, at whatever it might cost. Now, help us accordingly. Thank you for your clear instruction on these matters. May we rejoice in the hope of our salvation, and may those who are in our sphere see and experience that light and that joy emanating from us because we have the truth. In Christ's name we pray.